Las Vegas, famous, fabulous playground of the West. A wide open town that never goes to sleep. Vegas! Vegas, baby, Vegas! You're either in or you're out. Right now. My best mates are going to Las Vegas this weekend. I'm told it's incredible. Las Vegas, here we go! Pack your bags and get ready. You're going to Vegas with someone who knows Vegas inside and out. This is Vegas Never Sleeps with Stephen Maggi, the podcast. Whether you grew up in the 1960s or simply have enjoyed music in all the decades that followed, you know Felix Cavalieri. His music is really a part of the American culture right now. He's in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Had four number one hits, six top 20 singles, six top 20 albums. Felix, what a career. Do you ever go sometimes when you're somewhere, because it's played in the background of our lives all the time, that great music, and you hear it and go, wow, we really made an impact. Well, we don't think of it like that. We just, you know, like I say, when, when you hear uh, something that you did oh, 50 years ago, 40 years ago, to me, it just brings a, a smile to my face. Because we had a ball. I mean, seriously, first of all, it, it's, like, it's like a dream come true to be able to do what we did. And then, you know, of course, we remember it while it was happening. It was a joyous situation, and, and that's what comes to mind. Well, you know, I remember seeing Mick Jagger on uh, Dick Cavett's show, and Cavett laughed. He goes, hey, you ever think you'd be doing this in the 50, in your 50s? And then Jagger laughed. And this, of course, was when he was like 30. Yeah. Did, did you ever think when you were doing this stuff back then that years later people would still be clamoring to hear you sing those same songs? Well, I think the, the first part of the question is, did you ever think? <laughs> I don't think we thought. I think we just did. We just had a ball. You know, those years were very tumultuous, you know, we were kids, you know, I mean, you know, it, it was really uh, quite an experience because of all the, the, the British uh, invasion, so to speak, with the music, the Beatles, the Stones. It was a very exciting time. But no, you, you very rarely do, do, do you think this far ahead? No. We never, we never thought this far ahead. <laughs> well, you know, in addition to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, you're in the Songwriters Hall of Fame. And right. I'm always fascinated by songwriters. And you, and three songs in particular I want to just talk with you about. It's a Beautiful sure. Morning, Grooving, right. and Good Loving. How do you do that? In other words, when, when I hear It's a Beautiful Morning, I picture birds flying, the sun's out. Absolutely. It just comes to me. Is, is that where that starts? Or how, or how did you, like, put that down on paper from, from those thoughts? It's just exactly like that. You know, basically... You know, I, I do some songwriting kind of like uh, seminars and stuff like that, especially when I lived uh, closer to the East Coast, uh, to Berkeley uh, Music School. You know, basically, it's, it's like when you're dreaming. You know, if, if you're just about to knock off to sleep and you hit that kind of like zone there, you go in there and you just, like, things happen, you know. And, and if it happens, like, for example, in my case, through my fingers on a keyboard, this inspiration comes out. And then it's, 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 of course, like, for example, like my, my wife, she's always told me, well, how could you watch that movie before you go to sleep? You dream about it. Well, you put stuff in your subconscious computer here that you want to dream about. You know, like, you know, it, it usually, like, when you're young, of course, it's like mostly relationships, which is what was in our case, in my case. And it's, it's situations that you're involved in. As you get a little older, you know, it's stuff you read. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, and it's kind of fun because your music, you can look at, at your discography and you can see a change because when you got to People Gotta Be Free, right. now you were talking about important stuff. It kind of went right. from the romance to that. 
Yeah, and that's exactly right, man. You hit that right on the head because that's exactly what happened to me and us. By us, I mean my generation, you know, at that time was going through the assassinations, you know, and basically that song, uh, uh, People Gotta Be Free, was written right after Robert Kennedy's assassination because I was working for his uh, campaign and I was actually dating a woman who was there at that horrible event that he got assassinated. You know, unlike today, uh, we, and again, I use the collective we for that group of people that I was involved with in, in, the, in the 60s, we, we, we were involved in uh, a lot of the politics and the upraising of what we thought was the consciousness of the world, you know, with the, with the Maharishi, and my, in my case, I had a Swami. And, you know, we, we really wanted to do something to make a change in um, what we thought was kind of like a really kind of crazy world. The interesting thing is a lot of those songs at that time, especially after the assassination and so forth, were angry. What's great about People Gotta Be Free is you can listen to that, and, and it's actually kind of a real positive feel to what could happen. Yeah. Well, that has to do with my personality, you know, and uh, that's one of the reasons why my ex-partner there, Eddie, and myself were a great team. I, I saw the sunny days. It was always raining in his world. <laughs> <laughs> well, that is interesting. So the two of you are working, and, and you found that helpful, right? Because you could kind of, yeah, yeah. the yin and the yang, right? Exactly. And, you know, like as I say, you know, uh, we just uh, basically, uh, uh, you know, we, we were around at the time when these phenomenal songwriting teams like the Beatles and were out there. And, uh, you know, we just were very fortunate to be able to kind of continue that with us. You know, it was, it was great. Uh, and, and, uh, and it still is. I moved to Nashville, Tennessee to continue writing because that that part of our industry uh looks like it might survive uh, although like sports i i'm not sure where we're going you know i mean uh, i've been we'll get to that later but you know i'm a big sports fan ever since i went to syracuse university i, I went to syracuse right after jimmy brown was there so that place was like oh, oh wow. my god you know it was like football heaven at that time basketball hadn't really hit there yet you know as much as it did uh, in the latter years but uh do you still follow Where, the Orange Men? Um, I do. You know, I've got friends that invite me to the games up there sometimes, and I just like sports. I mean, basically, I, I got really hooked. I never was really big enough to play, uh, but I, I, I've always noticed over the years this tremendous affinity between athletes and musicians. They want to do what we do. We want to do what they do. What's interesting about your music is it has a great crossover appeal. You know, I listen right. in the car. I listen to a lot of satellite radio, and there's a channel called Soul Town, which I really right. enjoy that music. Absolutely. And I think the only white artist I've ever heard is the Young Rascals. Well, there's a few others, but still. Well, look, we were the first white act to be on the Red and Black Atlantic label. If you yeah. if you have any you know any knowledge of Atlantic Records, that was an R and B jazz label. Oh yeah. And they started another label at that time called Atco, which was where they put Bobby Darren and, you know, Sonny and Cher. But the Rascals were on Atlantic. So we were the first black, uh, white act to be on that label. And, and there's such great stories I could tell you about that. I mean, like the camaraderie at Atlantic Records, which was in those days a small label. You know, it was not Warner Brothers yet. Uh, like, for example, one, one time uh, Otis Redding came to the re studio. He peeked in the door and he said, Oh, my God, they are white. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was going to ask, Debbie, did you hang with, I know Ray Charles was big at Atlantic early in his career oh, and yeah. so forth. Did you get to see these guys, and did you, did you have a camaraderie with these folks? 
Well, Ray was gone by the time we we uh, we got there. He was already had jumped a ship to uh, ABC Paramount, mm-hmm. and but uh, I did get a chance to meet him. You know, because he was one of the guys who really, really, really influenced me. But yes, we we met a lot of these people because Atlantic was not like a closed door place. It was a place where everybody walked the halls. There was very little, I think, ego as far as I was concerned. It was just a great and multi-talented group of human beings. That label, not only as, as far as like the musicians, but I mean the engineers, the, the people who worked there were brilliant. And, and I could go on to, for hours about that. I don't want to bore you, but you know, the eight track, which in those days, there was only one in the United States that was Atlantic. Really? Yep. Les Paul and the people from Atlantic, which would have made two of them, actually. They invented and created everybody else, including the Beatles in England, were four tracks. If you can believe, all that music they made was on four tracks. That is amazing. <laughs> it really is incredible. Yeah. How, how important was some of the early uh, stuff like Chuck Berry and Little Richard? Was that something you listened to growing up? Oh, absolutely. Now, basically, what happened is this. You know, real, real quick capsule. I, I grew up... Uh, in, in a suburb of New York City, I was I was in a, in a family that, uh, quite frankly, was all medical. My father, my mother, everybody, and I was studying classical for eight years of my life. And then all of a sudden, I went to high school one day, and my first day of school, this fellow who was to become my best friend uh, turned around and said to me, "Hey, you like rock and roll?" I had never heard rock and roll. I didn't know what the hell he was talking about. But I said yes, because I didn't want to be a square. Right. Went home, heard Alan Freed, who had just taken from Cleveland rock and roll to New York. End of story. I flipped. Wow. Yeah, and Alan Freed was playing the really cool stuff, right? I mean, it it was the stuff that other places you just never heard before and some such great stuff kind of reaching that big audience which is what you did too you were right on that kind of on that wave exactly and 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 basically i was lucky enough to be in the you know the new york area uh wins uh, 1010 and i heard all this as you say great stuff it, little chuck berry absolutely well this whole term blue-eyed soul i mean that goes back to what you did and and, and the group did and there was no um, backlash, was there? I mean, the uh, yeah, the black sure. artists were, were were they upset oh, about not, it? Not from the black artists, no. Yeah. <laughs> no, the black black artists say, "Hey, soul brother." <laughs> no, no, no. We 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 never had a. I mean, like I say, we, seriously, it, it, that I should say it doesn't exist. But you know, basically, musicians respect musicians. You know what I mean? And and I'm sure it's the same in your field. If you know somebody's like a really great broadcaster, man, you know he's a great broadcaster. You don't say, well, I didn't like him because of his eyes. <laughs> <You know? laughs> exactly, exactly. Well, you know, an interesting thing about your music, too, is your songs have been recorded by a number of different people. I mean, from right. you know Marvin Gaye and Gloria Estefan, Booker T and the MGs, I mean, Dusty Springfield... Do you like that? I mean, is that when you hear something like that and somebody that takes kind of a different take on your music, but Absolutely. you like where they go? Of course. It's a compliment. It's, it's a major compliment. And, uh, you know, it's something that, as, as a matter of fact, you know, I, I moved to Tennessee, to Nashville, Tennessee, for that sole purpose was to, was to write for other people besides myself. So yeah, that, that, that's 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 a real nice thing, you know. What I mean, there's there's no question about it. It's as a songwriter down here, these people, that's what they look forward to is somebody doing their music. 
You like doing country music by any chance? Because I don't that, do country I'm, at all. I, huh? At all. Well, <laughs> I, 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 the closest thing I did is I just did a, a new album, and I wrote with one of the one of the uh, uh, one of the best writers down here, this fellow Steve Warner, who's a, a Chet Atkins kind of like guitar yes. person and writes great stuff for Garth Brooks and all that. The closest thing I ever 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 did to country. But you know, it's so interesting because it's like. As I'm speaking to you, I don't think there's any doubt as to what part of the country I come from. You know what I'm saying? Right. <laughs> yeah. It's the same thing when I sing what might be a country song. It don't sound like country. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I guess it's no different than somebody from the Deep South trying to sing something. You can tell where that's going. <laughs> Just based Yeah, on and, 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 and you know what? That's what makes America great. Yeah. That's what I like about this place. You know, it used to be where, as you traveled around the United States, if you went to different uh, areas, there was different music. Unfortunately, it's not like that anymore. It's all one music. You know, the the people who are in control, the Live Nation and those people. But it used to be when you went to New Orleans, you heard this great funky stuff. When you went to California, you had that kind of like, you know, airy stuff, you know, like Beach Boys and Birds. And now it's all the same. You know, it's interesting. You grew up in an Italian family, and just like mine, I know what that's like. Music's a big part, like you said. Even though you didn't have rock and roll then, classical music and so forth, you were expected to understand this and like it, right? I mean, that was part of growing up. Well, it should be. You know, basically, it was culturally uh, important, and uh, it's also musically important. And it's good for your soul. It's good for your brain. It's good for everything, you know. Well, hopefully, you know, like I say, uh, not to be, you know, digress from our subject here, but down in Nashville, Tennessee, uh, we started a little family down here of people, uh, which we call the uh, Manja Group. Nice. And uh, it's a bunch of men who cook. <laughs> Love that. Love yeah. that. Yeah, and and you know, like as I say, you know, this is a fastly dying tradition. Uh, even just the food. I mean, you know, basically the uh, holidays and all that. That you know, I'm really proud to be part of. Well, yeah. Did you when you were growing up? I mean, I wonder if you were like me. I had like six, seven Italian families that I hung out with relatives, and everyone had a great sauce, and everyone was just a little bit different, and they were all great. Was it kind of like that where you grew yeah, up? Yeah, you know, and that's what I really miss because that doesn't seem to be around anymore. Of course, as we move and you know migrate to different parts of the country, as people pass, but that generation that you know basically was before us. Yeah, man. It's a great tradition to grow up in, and, and, and I'm really happy that it happened to me, as I'm sure you are. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, when you're in Vegas, you come out, there's some great Italian restaurants, but there's a few of these old vintage classic Italian restaurants, and you just walk in and you get that smell, and it brings oh, yeah. you right back. <laughs> oh, yeah. Trouble. Those are trouble places. <laughs> they, they add to your waistline, yes. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> Believe me, I understand that. Yeah. It's a beautiful When you started out, I mean, you had, a, I, I won't say good luck because it's, it's talent, but you got right off with Joey D and the Starlighters, and people don't realize the song Peppermint Twist was a big hit, and you you went uh, all over Europe with that, I, I understand. Yeah, but I wasn't really part of the Peppermint Twist part of it. I, I, it came after that, and I went over, I went to Europe uh, with him afterwards. I was a college student when that came out. You know, I was... Uh, but I, I was part of that, and you're, you're right. There's, look, there's a tremendous amount of luck involved in life. I mean, you can call it luck, you can call it good karma. 
you obviously you have to have a certain amount of talent to back up when they call your name. You know, I mean, right? Exactly. To, go up to bat, man, you better better hit that ball. You know, but <laughs> as you know from major league, you you, you got to have a little luck to even get called up. Well, absolutely. You know, when you were back there too, you guys opened for the Beatles. But I, I no, read no, no, other way around. Those they guys opened for you. For us. That's right, man. They had not been discovered yet. Wow. And you, and you weren't necessarily impressed because at the time, right? I mean, they hadn't they hadn't put the whole uh, recipe together at that point. Well, let's put it like this. Okay, here I am, a college kid. I was asked to go to Europe because I had taken the summer off. And I was really contemplating not going back to school. And I got this phone call to go to Europe and join this band, which, as, as I said, was known in the United States as Joey D and the Starlight. And I go to, uh, I think it was Germany first, and I walk into this club, and the place is absolutely going bananas. Hysterical. Now, obviously, somebody was important there, and it was these guys who we had never heard of called the Beatles. The women, the girls were screaming. I said, okay, what's going on here? Oh, that's the Beatles. Oh, what's the Beatles? These guys on stage, the first guys I really ever saw with long hair, what you could hear basically was uh, a group, uh, I thought basically they were a singing group. Their music was not very strong, but their vocals were very strong. And I frankly was trying to figure out what the heck was going on because uh, when they did American music, they're okay. But when they did their music, you just, you, 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 you saw that spark of what was to become genius, no question. You saw something very, and heard something very, very uniquely different from what we were doing in the United States or what they were doing, I should say, because I was still a kid. And 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 it, and it really influenced me to become uh, to to do this for a career. In 1964, you're watching them on TV. They're over the Ed Sullivan thing. Did you think, wow, they really took that next step? And I, you know, you saw that promise, and boy, did they fulfill it. Well, I mean, like I say, when you walk into a club, now seriously, I mean, I'm sure like you've been to many places where they play music. Did you ever hear anybody completely screaming the top of their lungs all the time you're in the room? No, never. I've seen it on film, but exactly. never person. You say, well, something big is happening here. You know, this is not manufactured, and there's no mouse in the room. This is serious. <laughs> it, was, it was unique. I mean, you say, what the hell is going on here? Well, it's the Beatles. So you knew. You knew before they came to the United States and did the Ed Sullivan, and I happened to be in the United States at that time, Something big's happening here, man. So TV, you did the Sullivan Show too. You did a lot of those things. Was right. that fun in those days, or was Absolutely. that kind of a drudge? Everything was fun. Everything was fun, <laughs> except for getting up at five thirty, six o'clock in the morning to go rehearse for the Ed Sullivan Show six days a week. Yeah, Other he, than that, yes, it was fun. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, he, yeah. He didn't let you just come in and play, right? No, <laughs> no, 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 no. That was a very, very, very. It, it, I use the word loosely. It, it, it was called, it was a tight run ship until he got there. Because, you know, what happened is it's, it, this was live TV. So basically, you worked literally six days a week. Every morning, you rehearsed. On Saturday night, before a whole audience, but un, not televised, you did a complete run of the show. And then on Sunday night, live, at 8 p.m. Eastern, you did the show. And it was all timed, except for him. 
So he'd go on, he'd see somebody in the audience he knew, he'd start talking, now he's cutting into the time for the next act. Uh. <laughs> it was a madhouse. <laughs> wow. <laughs> yeah, but yeah. because it's his show, he did what he wanted to do. He saw somebody new in the audience. Oh, and in the audience is, you know, well, okay, there's 15, 20 seconds. That's what happened to Jackie Mason. <laughs> right, right. That's a great big when he, when he makes a sign that he really didn't make, but I guess he, that, that affected well, what him. What do you for do? You time. got a comedy act. What do you do? You cut out the chorus? You don't have a chorus. You got a joke. <laughs> you got a line. It's tough. You know, you got a routine. Anyway, but it, it was like, like I say, seriously, I enjoyed every moment of that. Did you guys get a lot of attention after you played there? I mean, because people say that yeah. that was a big thing, you know. People... Oh, yeah, of course, yeah. That was what it was all about, is getting on that show and, and, and uh, uniting like your, your audience uh, throughout the United States. Because, you know, basically, you have to, if you're going to have a hit record, probably uh, nothing has really changed. You have to have the entire United States know who you are. You can't just have a hit record in New York or in Georgia. You know, you've you got to have it across country. Oh, that got you across country. Yeah, I, I've got a question on that, but one thing, I, you got a huge list, you, you were on every show that was on back then. The one that I thought of that you might have had some fun with, and I just wanted to ask you was, this is Tom Jones, because I would imagine oh, he yeah. loved your music. You know what, man? He was a great guy. He is a great guy. He's a really cool guy, man. And we, and you know, we just, I love singing with him, man, on that show. I mean, it was early in the morning in in England. Mm-hmm. Uh, a little bit too early to be singing, but yeah, he he's a great guy, man, and he's a great singer. And you know what, man, he's still doing it. God bless him. It's unreal. Yep. Well, one thing that's interesting, you're talking about. You really had a, a record was a big deal, and you had to sell the record. So, what do you think about today's? That, of course, you're still doing this, but records aren't the same thing anymore. Now it's all no. about touring. It, it, you think this is well, easier or harder for well, people doing? Now, this? now it's past tense. <laughs> there is no touring. No, right, we're, that's we're right. Hold, yeah. Well, you know, everything has changed uh, as a result of the Internet and the uh, Spotify's and the Apple Music's and, and all that stuff. You know, it changed considerably from the physical, you know, CD or vinyl in our day and, you know, tape to uh, streaming. Everything's streaming. And uh, basically, this... You know, what, what people don't understand is that uh, music is a business, you know. And uh, what has happened is that the, the, the rules that were made governing our, how should I put, income from uh, writing and publishing mm-hmm. were done in 1941. Yeah, it's crazy, right? <laughs> there's, no, there's no streaming, there's no CDs, there's no DVDs. It, it's, it, it was sales. So to get legislation to change... We, meaning the songwriters and publishers, we go down to, just like every other American is entitled, we lobby down in Washington. We go down to ASCAP, BMI, we go down, we talk to the senators and the representatives. It's not easy, because what we're up against are humongous corporations. What do we got, a million songwriters in the United States of America? We're up against Google, Apple Music, Spotify, you know, good luck. (laughs) Exactly, (laughs) exactly. But you know, it's weird. In the one sense, you got a little more freedom in the sense that if you, you want to push your music, you have YouTube and you can get out there. But on the other hand, there's a lot of really bad music on on YouTube and so forth too. And how do you <laughs> how do you 
dive through all that, you know? <laughs> How do you guide through all that? That's a good question. You know, it's a good question. I, I don't know. I, all I know is that, you know, like, it's changing. And just like everything else from generation to generation, it's changing. It, it will get someplace where it makes a little bit more sense. But, you know, you, you get into kind of like some really interesting words here, like greed and avarice. <laughs> yeah, you know people. People are weird, man. You know, it's like I have this friend that writes songs with me. He wrote this song called "It's Not the Money, It's the Money." It's not the money, though. It's the money. Yeah, you did a couple of things, kind of the the, the post rascal days. You've done all sorts of interesting things, and a couple is collaborating. And I want to ask you first of all, doing an album with Steve Cropper, and I, well, I mean, he uh, again a musician's musician, right? I mean, people love Steve Cropper. Yeah, uh, basically, we came from the same uh, family, so to speak, uh, at Atlantic Records there. You know, he was part of that Atlantic Records with, uh, you know, the Memphis Stacks guys in those days. See, what, what happens here in Nashville is it, it, people, uh, they come here for the purpose of, of wanting to, usually to write, or to, in some cases, be discovered, like the younger people so basically it's easy when you're, you're staying in a pl- you're living in a place and steve has been here for many years and you, you decide to write together oh let's write together well we did that and there was a third party here who who had just moved in very aggressive from new york and he said why don't we go after a record deal we had no idea going for a record deal we were just writing songs see and he got a record deal for it and it was fun you know like they say but it, it all happens very very kind of like you know intimacy and, and, and instead of like well we're setting up our you know yeah. appointment now of course that's changing because this place has just boomed you know, now what do you have going on right now because I think you, don't you have an album coming out well I, I, I did two things that uh, caught me off guard with this COVID I did a book which is ready to come out and I did an album that's ready to come out now what are we going to do well we usually sell a lot of our things on sh- uh, at the shows, uh, right. and, and there's no shows. And we, we, as a matter of fact, we're doing one in October. I'm happy to say, in San Diego area. That's great. Uh, but we haven't done a show since February because there are none. So we're trying to figure out the marketing procedure to see what we're going to do with all this because we really don't know. Well, we're going to look for both of those. It's really, <laughs> we're really kind of excited about it. And of course, out in Las Vegas, we can't wait for you to come back. I know you play like the, you've played the Nugget in some places. You come out semi regularly out to yeah. Vegas. Yeah, we got a good relationship with those people there. That you know, they've been great to us, and you know, we we really miss it. Quite frankly, it was it was again. I use the word fun. I love what I do. So as you can see, man, yeah. I, <laughs> we miss it like crazy, man. I mean, it was so much fun to go out and see all these people. That you know, you know, and uh, basically know you through your music. And uh, it's just a fun thing, you know, and uh, we, we're not doing it anymore. And it's it's yes. affecting the whole band. Sports have fantasy camps. So does rock have fantasy camps. Right. And I understand you've done some of that stuff. So who comes to that? And, I mean, uh, how realistic do you get with that? I mean, do you have groupies <laughs> there and, <laughs> you know, assorted drinks and what have you? I did the first one. There's a gentleman by the name of David Fishoff who started these rock and roll fantasy camps. It's kind of like the baseball camps, you know. Are you kidding me? You're going to throw me a fastball? Get, get, get out of town. You know, you're not going to throw me a fastball. You know what I mean? Yeah. You're going to throw me a, a, a lob. And that's how it is. You know, for the most part, unless you've got a, 
kind of sophisticated audience that comes in that really wants to do something like it would be, you know, I would say with all due respect, as a master class. It's people who want to just mingle. It's people who want to ask a lot of questions about your particular instrument or, you know, how do you write or stuff like that. But lately, we've been doing this online. Hmm. That and sounds I, cool. Do people like that? Because I think what an opportunity to maybe up your game a little. You're not going to do this as a, as a career, but, yeah, it makes you a little better. <laughs> well, it, the thing is, you know, uh, it, it is good because I find that the people who go out of their way to pay that money to do this online, they're really a lot more interested in uh, than rather than just mingling. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Because at the Rock and Roll Fantasy Kids, you, you play – you know, like I say, you play with the with the, with the people who are like myself, you know, and that's one part of it. But I, again, I, I use the analogy with baseball. But could you imagine? I mean, hit me a hit me a ground ball, but you know, get out of the way, okay? Because you might kill me. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> Well, I'd love to come to your rock fantasy camp. Not, not to, not to. I, w- I would love to write like that, but I can't, and not to play. But be your announcer. I'd love to introduce you guys. <laughs> you well, know, that'd be fun. Yeah, it'd be, it is fun, man. It, it, like I say, and, and Dave has been doing it for many years. He's very successful with it, and now they're jumping. They they jump to online, and I think it's going to be okay. I think it's going to work out. I'm not really sure, uh, but we had a, a decent turnout for mine. I did uh, one. As a matter of fact, I'm going to do another one. I think in September. But, again, there's nothing like being there in person, you know. Want to fly somewhere? Looking for cheap flights or cheap tickets? Then call. That's right. Call the low-cost airline travel hotline now for prices so low, we can't publish them anywhere. Low-cost airlines has all kinds of cheap travel deals. Fly domestically and save up to 75%. You can even fly internationally and save even more. Yes, fly anywhere in the world and save a lot of money on your plane tickets. We'll even save you money with cheap travel deals on hotels, rental cars, even complete travel packages. So don't book your tickets until you call us first for the absolute cheapest prices on U.S. and international airline tickets and hotels. Call right now for prices so low they can't be published. Travel experts are here 24-7 to help. 800-296-1337. 800-296-1337. 800-296-1337. That's 800-296-1337. What if every dollar you invested into your training program turned into $30 of revenue? What if your learning program was so engaging that your employees looked forward to annual trainings? And what if you could monitor the success and effectiveness of your curriculum with quantifiable metrics? Go to training.epsilonxr.com. E-learning has made each of these scenarios possible, utilizing tools such as virtual and augmented reality, simulations, and online instructor-led training provides a safe environment for employees to learn at their own pace. Go to training.epsilonxr.com. Here at Epsilon XR, we have 50 years of experience in creating powerful and effective training programs. We combine proven training methods with cutting-edge technology to create immersive training experiences. Are you ready to take your training program to the next level? Go to training.epsilonxr.com. Training.epsilonxr.com. <laughs> 